if the policy is primarily seeking just to deter, I think that it's going to always fail because that, those policies aren't taking into account the fact, the, the very real reasons for which people are leaving and the fact that they're willing to truly give up everything in an attempt to make a better life for themselves. And so, I mean, my, my, my stance on this, based on the, at this point, hundreds of interviews that I've conducted with people from all over the world, is that deterrence alone doesn't work. And um, unless we open, continue to open more and safer pathways, uh, individuals are going to be forced to make really difficult decisions, including uh, crossing irregularly, even if that wasn't the initial desire that they had to enter the United States and to seek asylum. Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Are you an inventor or do you know an inventor? Welcome to the Border Chronicle. I'm Melissa Del Bosque, co-founder, along with Todd Miller, of the weekly newsletter about the U.S.-Mexico border from a border perspective. You can read more of our work at thebordercronicle.com. Back in August, I spoke with Caitlin Yates shortly after Panama's government, with U.S. backing, announced a new campaign to prevent people from migrating through the Darien Gap. Caitlin has been studying migration in the Darien for several years. She's also released a new report along with fellow migration expert Stephanie Loiter on the current asylum situation at the U.S.-Mexico border, which has grown increasingly complex. The quarterly reports have been issued by the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas of Austin since 2018, and they're a way of taking a bird's eye view of the border and the health of our asylum system. In summary, our asylum system is in bad shape, and it's become increasingly difficult to follow the ad hoc system, which is why I wanted to have Caitlin back on the podcast. Thanks so much, Caitlin, for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back speaking with you. Yeah, so you're you're down in Panama right now, actually. And what is it looking like down there, especially since the Panamanian and U.S. governments announced that they were going to try and stem migration over the summer? Has any of that worked? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really important question because obviously a lot of what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border is being impacted by what's happening or not happening here, here in Panama and in the Darien Gap. And what we've seen basically is the U.S. have has an increasing inten- or interest in uh, thwarting some of the migration moving in into the Darien Gap. In practice, this has kind of played out in the way of asking Panamanian and Colombian authorities to crack down on both migration as well as uh, smuggling and trafficking activities in the, throughout the Darien. Since these ongoing talks have, have happened throughout the course of this year, though, we really haven't seen any, any sort of real changes. There have been small um, efforts on the part of both Colombian and Panamanian authorities and cracking down at, at times on, on migrant smuggling activities or an increasing enforcement in the form of biometrics review. But as it stands regarding actual migration and the transitory movement of migrants through Panama, there have been no concrete efforts. With that being said, I do think it's worth noting that uh, among the kind of different facets of pressure that the U.S. government is placing on Panamanian and Colombian authorities, 
one of the kind of newest um, ideas that's come out of Washington has been for Panama to actually begin deporting migrants who have successfully crossed the Darien Gap from Panama itself. Um, uh, this was released or announced back in November, although again, to date, these kind of mass deportations have not taken place. I think it's going to be interesting if we do start to see larger kind of deportation flights out of Panama, which has historically been a country who has not cracked down on irregular migration. Uh, but, but to date, as I said, these are practices which have not taken place and what that's going to look like logistically if it does take place, I think is possibly uh, another discussion for another time once we have more information on, on what that what that plan looks like. And what's the approximate number of people who have crossed this year? Is there a, a figure out there? So 2023 is going to be the year when the most migrants have successfully crossed the Darien Gap. In the first 11 months of the year, we're talking about more than 500,000 individuals. Um, so we're expecting anywhere between 550 and, and 600,000 individuals in total for 2023. That is obviously significantly higher than any other year on record, with last year, 2022, being the second highest year on record with about 250,000 crossings. Um, this year, similar to last year, the vast majority of individuals, about 60% of individuals who have crossed have been uh, or have originated in Venezuela. Uh, and to date, that continues to be the primary nationality crossing Darien. So mostly Venezuelans. Um, are you seeing any uh, new migration patterns, new countries who are coming through the Darien that you hadn't seen in the past? Yeah, I mean, uh, Darien has always been a place where not only regional migrants cross, but also extra regional migrants and some of the, the newer trends for 2023 have been the kind of continuation from last year of Afghans. Um, but also the increasing crossing of, of Chinese nationals. Um, so those are for the first, these nationalities for the first time are in the top 10 most common nationalities of those crossing. Um, it's also probably worth mentioning that in addition to who we're seeing more of, we're also seeing significantly less Haitians crossing. And this is a new trend within the last few months, really, um, but a significant kind of turn uh, from the demographic trends that we've been seeing in previous years. Um, part of that may be because of other parole programs that the United States has, has in place, in particular for Haitians as well as other nationalities. Um, but I do think it's worth mentioning that, that Haitians are, are significantly less likely to be crossing now than they were at this time last year. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I was just in, in Greece and I spoke with a gentleman uh formerly from Afghanistan, who runs a refugee center there. And he said he started hearing this past year from people from Afghanistan talking about this route through the Darien Gap as an option, which he hadn't, he said he hadn't heard that before. Um, I imagine some of this is tied to the difficulties of just getting into Europe now, right? Where people are looking for other options. And, and we sort of talked about that last time we had you on the podcast. But I, I imagine some of these folks are coming through the Darien because they've decided that might be easier than trying to get into Europe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you see this not just with Afghans, but but with other extra regional nationalities as well. In the case of Afghans, we're talking uh, about kind of a major shift in the outward movement of Afghans in the last two years, of course, 
And so you're, you have Afghans based primarily in Pakistan at this point, looking for a variety of, of alternative migration pathways. And one of those pathways that they found, of course, is, is through the Americas, um, with other Afghans continuing to, to reside elsewhere in, in South Asia or, or continuing onwards to Europe. Um, but, but the kind of large scale crackdown on, on Afghan, uh, outward migration right now, I think is, is something to continue to watch as a trend in Darien and elsewhere. And interestingly, just in the news, it came out that the Mexican government is saying that it's out of money and is not going to deport any more people. I don't know if you heard that down in Panama, but it just came out. Um, I do think that's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the United States responds to that as well, um, especially as we're looking forward in the coming months, both the U.S. and, and Mexico having having elections uh, in just a few months. Um, but I, I also can't say that that I'm fully surprised. I mean, in the past years, the number of deportations has increased dramatically uh, uh, within the context of Mexico and farther. I think that's the other part that kind of gets lost in this discussion, it's not just deportations to Northern Central American countries. Um, but to other countries in the region and uh, broadly in the Western Hemisphere as well, which obviously increases the overall costs associated with these returns um, and makes any sort of purely enforcement-based strategy difficult to sustain in the long term. Yeah, and I'm wondering, you've, you know, you've been studying there in GAP since at least 2018. You've spoken to a lot of people migrating through there. By the time they reach the Darien, do they already have an idea of the rest of their route to the U.S.-Mexico border? Are they already deciding, like, I'll go to the border of Arizona or I'll go to Texas? Or does that get decided as they move further north? Yeah, I, th I think it's a good question. And I, and I think it depends on two things, the nationality of the individual and, and the amount of resources that they have. Um, so, you know, and for certain nationalities, I'll take Haiti as an example, you have large diaspora communities in, in Tijuana. And so for a long time, that's where the, that's where the majority of, of Haitians arrived to. That stopped being the case, though, as CBC1 has, um, has kind of popped up in the last year here. And so now what you see in the case of Haitians, but also other nationalities, is that individuals are kind of constantly sharing information. Where are people getting appointments the fastest? Um, where are there places for individuals to wait uh, in terms of motels or housing or or being able to rent? Um, and so I think that information is being shared a lot. If you're talking about individuals that are here in Darien, uh, are they making plans? I think oftentimes people have an idea of where they'd like to go. But there's a recognition that there's a lot of traveling left and a lot of potential changes are going to happen at the U.S.-Mexico border by the time they reach there. And so there has to be some idea of, of kind of fluidity uh, in the decision-making process. But you do see certain cities hosting certain nationalities. Um, I mean, to give you a sense, you're going to see Matamoros, at least right now in the moment, hosting more, uh, hosting more Haitians than we had seen in the past. You're seeing Piedras Negras hosting more Venezuelans than you had seen in the past. And so you do see these little waves, often based around nationality or at least language, um, popping up as to, to where individuals end up or which city they end up waiting and are crossing up. And how much do the smuggling network networks influence that when people hire, you know, a smuggler, a smuggler? I mean, do they determine the route? It depends on the service that individuals are able to pay for. Um, in some cases, certainly this is more common with extra regional 
nationalities who have more resources, individuals have paid for the entirety of the journey up front, or at least have hired a guide for the entirety of the journey. In that case, the individuals themselves may not know exactly where they're going to end up at the U.S.-Mexico border, where they're going to cross, but their guide will. Um, and so in that way, there's, there's a lot less control on the part of, of the individual and more control on the part of the guide. But in many cases, uh, individuals are only paying for the smuggling service at the border itself. And so they've arrived to a border city, and then at that point, they begin looking for a guide. And, and, and that's a situation where individuals are going to have more autonomy on the city that they select, not necessarily on, on when they cross or or even how they cross, but but on where exactly along the border they do so. So it's really segment by segment as they head north, it sounds like. That's right, at least for individuals who don't have the amount of resources to hire such, a, such an organized smuggling service. Right, and, and so that takes me to the recent snapshot report for November of asylum processing along you know, the nearly 2,000 mile border that, that you and Stephanie Loiter um, published, which is incredibly helpful to just get this bird's eye view of what is happening on the ground right now, because it is incredibly complex as you were just describing. I mean, I was recently in Eagle Pass and there were Venezuelan families crossing the river. They weren't doing the CBP-1 appointments, but then I went to Matamoros Mexico and spoke with some Venezuelan migrants there who were doing the CBP-1 app or, or choosing to do so, um, you know, and I'm hoping you can just kind of explain the so overall scenario right now since Title 42 lifted in May um, and sort of summarize what you found in, in the recent report. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can at least try. I mean, I think it's worth noting that my conclusion along with Stephanie Loiter was that this is probably the most complex landscape that we've seen of asylum processing since we began these reports more than five years ago. Um, I don't mean that in the sense that there haven't been policies that have kind of cued migrants in different ways, but in every single city right now, there's a different process happening that allows individuals to enter the United States to request asylum. And this is the first time that we've seen such a vast array of different kind of policy makeups at each city. So to take a step back and just kind of situate where we are, CBP-1 began in January, so about 11 months ago. Head of 42 is lifted in May. This in theory creates more consequences for those who don't wait for a CBP-1 appointment, so this kind of virtual queuing process that's been happening. Um, and for a couple of months, that seemed to be working. Most people seem to be queuing virtually here, waiting for a CBP-1 appointment. Um, but by August and September, that kind of waiting period seemed to really be over. We started to see individuals um, crossing significantly higher numbers without waiting for an appointment, or individuals going to ports of entry along the border and saying, I can't wait for a number of reasons, security reasons, health reasons, because there weren't CBP-1 appointments in the city where they found themselves, um, is there another way for me to enter? And so what this has kind of created now is you have at least two major asylum processing systems uh, in place. And when I say asylum processing, this doesn't mean that individuals are directly requesting asylum at ports of entry, but beginning that process into the United States and subsequently request asylum. Um, you have CBP-1 appointments 
you have appointments that are being uh, that are being received in eight border cities along the U.S.-Mexico border every day. The, about 50% of those appointments are in two cities, Matamoros and Tijuana, so kind of the bookends of the U.S.-Mexico border. And then increasingly, you've had certain border cities also allowing certain individuals to enter at ports of entry through what we're calling walk-ups, which is the CDC permitted process where individuals are allowed in very small numbers to enter the United States without a CBP-1 appointment. In some cases, this is particularly vulnerable individuals for security or health reasons. In some cities, the gravity of the case or the or the vulnerability of the individual isn't necessarily a part of the decision-making process, but it could also be something like wait times. Um, we've also, for the first time in several years, seen the reemergence of wait lists. Uh, and what I mean by that are instead of virtual queuing through the application, um, we're talking about either a handwritten or a virtual list with names written on it of individuals queuing specifically for this walk-up process. I'm trying to summarize as best I can by while also trying to kind of convey the complexity of the situation because as confusing as it was for Stephanie and I to write this report, um, it's also incredibly confusing for migrants themselves to be able to navigate what it is that's happening, how it is that they're able to, to begin this queuing process. And so what we've seen increasingly is because of the limited number of, of, of appointments that are available and because of the kind of confusing nature of all of these different systems, individuals are increasingly opting not to wait for any queuing process, but rather just to cross between ports of entry. This has resulted in certain cities in the establishment of camps um, and in the increasing number of individuals attempting to uh, enter the United States without being detected. So this is an incredibly, not only complex system, um, but kind of a matrix to follow. And it is and certainly in no way since we began following these these the these asylum processes uh, in the last five years has it gotten any simpler, despite the fact that that CDP one in some ways was was supposed to kind of uh, regulate some of these some of these entries. Um, what we've seen is the establishment of some of the same old processes, including waitlist. Yeah, I mean, that was my takeaway from my recent trip to Eagle Pass and Brownsville and, you know, the Texas border. I mean, I've been doing this, writing about the border for 20 years, mostly the Texas-Mexico border. And in the past, I was always able to sort of figure out on the ground what was going on and be able to explain it. But it was so different from port of entry to port of entry, city to city, and you know, the migrants, asylum seekers also are very confused. Border residents are confused. Nobody's quite sure what the actual policy is because it seems like there's all these exceptions to the policy. And CBP-1 seems to be losing its foothold. Um, and and like you said, it's only offered in eight uh, cities, right? And how many, how many Port of entries do we have along the entire southern border? Oh, that's a good question, Melissa. Um, Sorry to put you on the spot. I should know this, but I know I know it's quite a few. <laughs> and there's, eight, there's several eight, dozen. <laughs> and eight is not very much uh, for a two thousand 
nearly 2,000 mile long border. So I wonder why it's only offered in these certain cities. And really, the majority of the appointments, as you said, are are in Matamoros and Tijuana. And certainly, when I was in Matamoros, most people there were saying they were doing CBP-1, which makes sense, because that's where most of the appointments seem to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, just to kind of add to that, that there's, there's very obviously an interest on the part of many migrants to absolutely follow the rules that are established. But what happens when you start to have all of these different processes happening at once, when there aren't enough appointments or avenues for which individuals can follow, things start to fall apart. Um, and so, yeah, I think that what we also found throughout, you know, our interviews for, for this, for this asylum processing update was that individuals, for the most part, were trying. Um, but you have, you know, the, the queuing process, the long wait times, the security situation on top of that, which in several border cities, the kind of main complaint that we were hearing wasn't the wait times, but the deteriorating security situation. Uh, and migrants kind of being forced to stay there to move inward into the interior of Mexico. And this creates a series of impossible kind of situ uh, situations for for migrants themselves who you know, aren't able to, to generate money while they're waiting aren't necessarily able to, to reside in, in safe or secure zones of the city or even the country. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's where you start to see some of these decisions being made of which one of them is the increasing tendency of, of certain certain migrants to opt not to use the application altogether and, and, and to cross irregularly, which is of course what the application was trying to prevent in the first place. Yeah, a Venezuelan gentleman that I spoke with in Matamoros said he had he was going to go through the CBP one app and he was trying and he had been waiting for four months and he's living in a camp right there on the riverbank on the Mexican side across from Brownsville. Um, and I think there's about 600 people in that mm -hmm. camp and it, and it's pretty dire circumstances. There's no running water. Uh, often there's no electricity, you know, there's no um, toilets. Um, people really can't, work, you know, they can kind of get some small jobs, but, you know, there's not enough food. And, and so it's, a, it's a real struggle for people. And now it's getting cold. And they're there in these sort of makeshift tents, um, you know, families with children and so forth, who are just sort of waiting it out, trying to get through, get one of these CBP one appointments. And he was kind of going through his reasoning with me saying, you know, I want to do things the legal way most people do, but I do know people who have just crossed the river and just tried to cross. And he said, but what happens to them often is they get deported back to Tapachula, uh, to the Southern Mexican border with Guatemala, and then they have to come back again. Um, interestingly, he was saying that when people do get deported, he had a friend who got deported back to Tapachula. And instead of giving up and going back to Venezuela, he called his wife and told her to sell the house and bring the kids and come through the Darien and meet him there at the border. And they were going to come back and try again um, at the U.S.-Mexico border. So it's not really deterring people at all because their circumstances are just so incredibly dire back in Venezuela. I, I think that's right. I, I think that when we're talking about any of any of these policies which speak primarily to to enforce borders rather than to find pathways which are i guess amenable both to, to cbt officers and to migrants themselves it's a hard balance but 
if the policy is primarily seeking just to deter, I think that it's going to always fail because that, those policies aren't taking into account the fact, the, the very real reasons for which people are leaving and the fact that they're willing to truly give up everything in an attempt to make a better life for themselves. And so, I mean, my, my, my stance on this, based on the, at this point, hundreds of interviews that I've conducted with people from all over the world, is that deterrence alone doesn't work. And um, unless we open, continue to open more and safer pathways, uh, individuals are going to be forced to make really difficult decisions, including uh, crossing irregularly, even if that wasn't the initial desire that they had to enter the United States and to seek asylum. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's my conclusion as well from, you know, hundreds of people that I've interviewed over the years, is that when it comes down to their survival, they're going to do whatever it takes in order to survive. And they have really nothing but bad options, and they just have to choose the least worst option. Um, so it's an incredibly stressful situation. And which kind of brings me to... Um, I think my final question, you know, we've been experiencing these high numbers of migration for at least a decade at the U.S.-Mexico border. And, and this is really a global phenomenon. I know the U.S. likes to look at itself in this bubble as if it's the only place where lots of people are arriving, seeking protection, but, but it's really just not. You know, there's a lot of people going to Europe and other parts of the world as well. Um, so obviously the U.S. government and DHS are, are very aware of the historic number of people who are migrating and, and you know, the overall situation, but it doesn't seem like anything's ever really done to make adjustments to the new normal. And uh, so this leads to a lot of humanitarian emergencies at the border. Like right now we have hundreds of people who are stranded um, between the border walls at Hukumba Springs in California. You know, we have a lot of people drowning in the Rio Grande and Eagle Pass. Um, and it's been largely left to local humanitarian groups really to deal with these emergencies. What do you think the US government could do to alleviate the suffering at the border? Yeah, it, it's a tough and important question. Um, not because there aren't things that can be done, but but I think because what is it that the United States is, is realistically going to do at the U.S. southern border? Um, I mean, I, I think one obvious solution, not solution, one, one obvious strategy that the United States could use to at least alleviate some of the pressure on some of these ports of entry is to expand the, the, where CUP processing is occurring. So have more, have more ports of entry which are processing CDP1 appointments on a daily basis and increase the number of CDP1 appointments. That's kind of an obvious uh, solution in the sense of kind of funneling individuals back to ports of entry and attempting to kind of, um, how would you say, mitigate some of the individuals who are having to make the decision to cross between ports of entry. It's a more systematized way that uses less resources on the part of BP and, and CBP as well. If that isn't something that's going to happen, um, there needs to be a standardization of these walk-up processes along the border. So having different walk-up processes, having different lists and queues, um, basically having these ad hoc, inconsistent policies for individuals outside of the CBP-1 appointment is only adding more chaos or more, more fuel to the fire. Um, those are two kind of 
policy-oriented strategies that individuals could use, that the CEP could use to, to be able to assist more individuals to enter the United States and again, their asylum policies. I think the United States in some ways has also recognized that if we wait until individuals arrive at the U.S. southern border, um, there is going to be chaos in some capacity because of the number of individuals waiting is always going to exceed the number of individuals that the United States says that they can process on a daily basis. So what we have seen is the U.S. attempting to create other pathways outside of just arriving at the U.S. southern border. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense as a way to alleviate some of this, this, this stress on the U.S. border with regards to the processing itself. Um, here I'm talking about the, the Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela uh, parole program, which has been in place now for a little while, well, almost a year, um, as well as the United States announcement of, of the development of safe mobility offices. Um, I think the problem here is going to be, or as we're going forward and looking at this as an alternative, so these are individuals who'd be requesting parole outside of the U.S.-Mexico border in places like Colombia, Costa Rica, um, the issue is going to be how quickly these, these applications can be processed. Um, if the requirements to even, uh, to even be able to apply are manageable for the individuals where they find themselves, um, and if they meet people, people where they physically are. So I think there's a lot of questions about how this is going to play out in the long term. Um, but I, I do think that if we're talking about how to alleviate some of the stress and some of the suffering on the U.S. southern border, one of the solutions has to be to create pathways that aren't exclusively at the U.S. southern border. Um, but I, I think it's too early for us to be able to say realistically if these are long-term strategies in the way that they've been created to date, um, given some of the concerns regarding regarding time and uh, and the types of requirements that, that the United States government is asking us of applicants like having a valid passport to give you an example. Um, but those would be my policy answers to how to, to continue to have expansion of legal pathways without creating so much chaos, um, like what we're seeing in, in, in Hakumba or, or in Lutzville in this moment. I don't think that these are solutions in and of themselves though, because as you say, there are so many people on the move for so many different reasons. Um, and so I think if we're talking about a longer term strategy, we do have to, to say, how are we not going to just have these reactive policies like um, the reestablishment of wait lists or like these humanitarian parole uh, programs, which certainly are helping, uh, but, but they're only reacting to the situation in the moment rather than kind of taking a forward, a forward thinking angle. Um, and with that, I, I don't know that we're there yet in the policy stance, but um, I, I think to limit the likelihood that these types of reactive chaotic situations continue to happen, the United States is going to have to shift the way that it thinks about how to anticipate the movement of migrants in the future. And it's really going to take hemisphere-wide cooperation and strategy, right? I mean, various countries are meeting, the U.S. is meeting with uh, Latin American countries, but um, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I agree with, with the sense that the United States government has taken and, and thinking about this as a regional, uh, as a, as a, the need for a regional approach. Um, I, I think I, here I have two concerns or, or two thoughts on, on kind of where we need to be thinking going forward. The first is that a lot of countries throughout the region have 
put in a lot of effort to receive migrants, to offer migrants and refugees different types of statuses, be they permanent or temporary, and do at least some extent attempts to integrate migrants. Here I'm thinking specifically about the Venezuelan and, and, and Haitian diasporas, but others as well. Um, the problem that, that I continue to come back to is that while these were solutions in the short and medium term for Venezuelan and for and for Haitians, who for the most part are coming from other other countries as they move northward, um, the integration piece just really wasn't there. And and I think that's you know if you're talking to a Venezuelan who's coming from Peru, Ecuador, or Colombia, or you're talking to a Haitian coming from from Brazil or Chile, um, they're going to give you a slew of reasons why it was too difficult to find a job or to sustain a job. The rise in xenophobia. Um, the inability to, to fully integrate into society um, became too difficult. And so, so I think any discussion at the hemispheric level isn't can't just be simply about managing migration or providing status immigration status to individuals, but about true long-term integration. And that's a tricky part of the puzzle that I, I think kind of gets lost in, in some of these, these enforcement-based discussions on how to handle uh, regional migration. Right. And then we also just need some really meaningful changes, bipartisan changes made in Congress, right? I mean, we haven't really had any meaningful changes made to our immigration system since the 90s. Um, so we still have this very sort of outdated 20th century immigration system as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that there's there's a real awareness at the bipartisan level uh that an immigra immigration policy change has to be made. Um, I don't know that we're at a point where we, I, I think lots of scholars have talked about how this only becoming more and more difficult given the, the kind of, um, the, the, the kind of opposed views on almost all aspects of immigration policy that, that both parties have at this point. Um, but without that, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult for the United States to be able to respond um, in these kind of anticipatory ways rather than reactive. And, and, and that's the, kind of what we're seeing play out consistently at the U.S. southern border over the last four or five years. Yeah, I feel like as Congress has become more polarized, things have become more complicated on the border, right? Because we can't get congressional leaders to budge from their perspectives um, and to come together and to, to come up with something that could actually help uh, the border and people migrating through the borderlands. So it's it seems like people are very entrenched right now in Congress, which is of course nothing new. And then we have the 2024 presidential election coming up. So it, it doesn't look particularly hopeful for any kind of uh, uh, comprehensive uh, reform moment. <laughs> No, it, it it certainly doesn't. I mean, that's that's not a part of the discussion that I'm I'm particularly an expert on. Um, but in terms of of the kind of policy prescriptions being put forward at the U.S.-Mexico border right now, they very much feel uh like the band-aid approach rather than comprehensive reform. And and I in this moment at least don't see that that changing in the in the shorter medium term. Yeah, and it's really just reflected in the border right now. This is just very piecemeal approach you know um i was comparing it with someone else to like a used car that they just keep taking in and patching it up so that it'll keep running 
um, and it's getting increasingly more and more derelict. And we're wondering like, how, how much longer can this car last on the road? <laughs> I, I think it's a really apt comparison. I mean, I, I think that Stephanie and I kind of wanted to draw up this matrix of, of the different kind of options for what we were seeing in each border city. Um, because it's incredibly hard to keep up with as, you know, we're talking about the, at this kind of bird's eye view. Um, but for those on the ground who are trying to figure out where to go or how to help or what in the world the actual policy or at least practices are um, on a day-to-day basis, I mean, they're changing so fast that, that our report is likely already outdated. And, and I think that really reflects this kind of what do we do approach um, from both BP and CBP officers. Yeah, as somebody who's trying to make sense of this for readers, I really, really appreciate the the reports that you and Stephanie are doing on this, and and I will definitely link to your latest report, uh, in in the show notes for this for this podcast. And I mean, your report just came out a week ago. <laughs> it can't be that outdated. I hope. <laughs> but you're Hopefully right. It not. probably is at the rate that we're going. Um, maybe to some extent, but but yeah, I mean, I think our, our goal is always to to try and show just just how much things are changing, um, you know, even every quarter. And so, so thanks so much for for highlighting our our latest report. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the work that you do. I know it takes a lot, and uh, it's it's just really helpful. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Melissa. It's really been my pleasure. All right, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.